This episode of The Wise Stripped is sponsored by and dedicated to all of our Hamsterdam level sponsors on our Patreon. You can find them at patreon.com forward slash The Wire Stripped. These guys are Stian Yelseth, Dominic Tollen, Simon Luibinus, Paul Simons, Richard Knoll, Eric Bryce, Marty Mangum, Morgan Tanji, Anders Eriksson, Russell Moat, Steve Toes, Paul Wallace, Where the fuck is Wallace? and Patrick Birch. If you want to join any of these guys uh, and have your name shouted out at the top of the episode, please go to patreon.com forward slash the wire stripped or go to patreon.com and type in the wire stripped and we'll pop straight up. More about this later on. Like the wire was just that show that when it came on, you didn't answer your phone, you didn't want to be disturbed. It, we call it our, uh, our black soap opera, pretty much like, you know, people were talking about the next day and it was just amazing show that like i said was just ahead of its time there was nothing like it at that moment that was on tv hey everybody welcome to this episode of the wire stripped i'm kobe and i'm dave and this is the podcast where we go through each episode of the wire episode by episode i don't know why i said episode so many times in one sentence uh, someone someone killed this me. is our episode about the episode <laughs> of the wire and kobe's having an episode it seems like i'm having an episode oh. <laughs> so Sorry, this guys. episode of the wire <laughs> it's called uh back burners it's episode seven of the now i'm just hearing episode again and again and again um back burners is the name of the uh, episodic bit of television that we that we watched um kobe tell them uh save me from myself here and tell tell the nice listeners how they can contact us yeah, so guys, we'd love to hear from you. We can contact us a few different ways. Uh, first of all, we are on social media, typically on Twitter and Instagram, both at The Wire Stripped. And also, if you want to send us a message, you can send us a burner. We'll give you some more details on that. But you can find us uh, by email at burner at thewirestripped.com. Right, uh, on with our chat about back burners. Let's do it. When you walk through the garden... You gotta watch your back Well, I beg your pardon Walk the straight and narrow track When you walk with Jesus He's gonna save your soul Just gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole Okay, guys, we are we're we're observing Hamsterdam from afar because it looks shit scary, basically. Yes, we were going to uh, record this episode in Hamsterdam, yep. uh, but we decided not to. So we're in an adjacent street, which is a, very clean. It's twelve twelve percent down on crime in yeah. this street. Um, yeah. Things things are very quiet here. Um, yeah. <laughs> Nothing's on fire. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great place to yeah. be. Uh, atmosphere's fine. Uh, low pollen counts. Um, <laughs> low pollen count. That's on B- Bunny Colvin's to-do list next. It is, yeah. Low, yeah first, low the- tackle crime, then reduce pollen count. Reduce hay fever <laughs> outbreaks. <laughs> He's going to move <laughs> all the pollen to one corner of <laughs> exactly. the city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> hay fever zones. Um, there's quite a few storylines intertwining in this episode. Yeah, this is a busy one, isn't yeah. it? Like we've got, we're basically we, as always, you know, we split this into um, separate plot lines, following you know um, the the myriad of characters within the wire, and we've got seven different ones seven to tackle, different threads here. to converse over. So, but that's like how, like how masterful is this is this show that they can have 
seven different interweaving narratives happening at, at the, the same, same time. time with like dozens of characters and we're just like yeah okay i know who all these people are yeah because you look at if an episode of a standard tv show has like a b plot yeah uh, and like a sophisticated one has like a c plot going underneath it but this has got like what's that f <laughs> yeah i'm run- they're running f- out of letters f yeah yeah G E F G G-plot? H the H the H plot. Are we going to start? <laughs> Maybe we should start ordering them like that. We should do, yeah. Uh, well, for me, the A plot on this one is the Western District. Yeah. Before we get to to Amsterdam, though, we should talk about a little incidental scene. Not well, not incidental, but it's incidental in this episode in which Herc spots Avon Barksdale. Yeah. In a car. Yeah. Little moment, but clearly very important. Um, because later he tells McNulty and then the dots start getting connected and I think this is amazing we see McNulty and Kima rush back to, to the major crimes unit they're frantically googling in their uh, police google uh, and they're like google. there he is you know he was, he was released but like it's it's another sort of shocking indication of the um, how information is so easily lost in this yeah. system well it was quite surprising I mean Herc couldn't even remember his name He's yeah. like, I know that I know that guy, I know that face. Um and then it had to be someone else that explained who that was. And it's like, didn't we put him away for a long time? And they're like, Yeah, it's fine. You didn't see him. And then like, oh sh- shit, it was him. What what the hell's happened here? Um And Herc references it as, you know, hey, he was one of those guys we busted on that detail I told you about yeah. a while back. Like to Herc, it's almost like that oh, season one was still just this like Some insignificant yeah. part of his life. But for us, it was this, like, obviously, <laughs> that was our world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why can't you remember her? Why? Um, but it's good to see that outrage. And that's where then the, obviously Minolte kicks up a gear and brings Kim under his wings to start to start like, well, we need to get back on these guys. Kintel Williamson is is a mope. Uh, but you know, he's a low flying mope. We need to get the the bigger fish. I love that anyone on the show is surprised for even a second that Avon Barksdale got his probation. This is podcaster and academic Andrew Johnston, our Baltimore expert. That's a, it's such a what well, it's a testament to the actual like it's David Simon saying the prison system is still subject to the same class rules that the streets are subject to. So in Baltimore, and we, and that is the one thing that's going on in season three, more, it's more stark, it's more obvious, it's the difference between the wealthy and the white and the poor and the black. It's definitely a great theming going through season three. And here we have it in the case of prison, where uh, because Avon is rich, right, and because he's connected... He does none of the time. He does whatever, two years or a year and a half or however it shook out. You know, whereas Cuddy, poor black guy, does all of his time. But it's also a great commentary on one of the problems of the drug war in the United States. And this is something when I volunteered at Jessup and did some tutoring in prison, it's crowded. It's way overcrowded. There's just too many people, and the prisons can't physically hold people. So any excuse you have to let someone out early, you'll take. We're cramming all these people into buildings, but we're not building enough space for them. So career psychopaths like Avon Barksdale will have to get out 
you know, until he gets caught up on, I don't know, drug charges or gun charges or whatever, like the next time around. And it becomes this really vicious cycle. Okay, let's slip on over to Hampstead then. Um, there's a really shocking scene in this episode mm. where we kind of see Hamsterdam for, for what it really is. Yeah. And because we've been like, as the audience, we've been really excited by Hamsterdam. Well, I don't know about you, but I have. Well, excited about the concept of uh, trying to legalize or, you know, maybe... Well, decriminalize almost, or, yeah. or, or or who knows? It's it's this weird, like Big Brother experiment that's new and exciting, and and we've been going along this journey and this concept and watching them like all these little challenges they've had to face. Yeah, and you like want to see how it goes. Yeah, you want to see like yeah. what's going on with it, and you're like, yeah, I want to. See, will legalizing drugs, quote unquote, tolerating drugs, will that work? Um, so I, I mean, certainly the first time I watched, it, I was super excited to see if this experiment would would pay off. Um, and what I like is Bunny's got a great idea, but then hasn't really thought it through because what we see through Bubble's eyes, someone who's used to the the worst of the world from a more benign point of view, sees like the worst of the world concentrated into like the size of half a football pitch. Yes. And, you know, there's fires going on, there's prostitution going on. Um all that, all that kind of shenanigans, and then he sees his boy Johnny Weeks, who is who's worse than worse for wear, and that's just a massive eye opener for him. So seeing it through his eyes really does make it a stark realization for us guys. I think that's exactly right, and and it's you know it's kind of referenced as 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 hell, mm. um, well later by the deacon, um, but it's interesting that that's the kind of stone face reality of what Hamsterdam is. Um, but we get that contrast to that when we see Bunny in the Comstat meeting. Yes. Proud as punch with his 12% reduction in crime. It's reduction in crime. And the thing is, there is crime reduction. And because people are looking just at the stats, they are, well, they're kind of curious. They don't quite understand how he's done this. Maybe it's a, an anomaly. But there has been a reduction in crime. And people seem as pleased as punch. But then that doesn't really address the, the point. It doesn't really address what happens on the street. That doesn't really address crime. And in a way, that's kind of agreeing with what Bob, uh, Colvin's point was. Is that you can massage numbers, you can change you can change things around. But if you're not addressing the roots of the crime, then you're not really actually helping. You're not really doing anything. You're just pushing paper around a desk. Yeah, exactly. He's just moved the problem instead of solving it. Yes. And in in many ways, you know, it's a solution. He, he has presented a solution that's better than any that has come previously in, mm. in many ways, but he's condensed all of the worst of society and all of its problems into one place and made the situation much worse for those people. In that place, yeah. And and it's you know, it's 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 interesting because we see you see it from Johnny Weeks's perspective as a junkie. It's 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 worse. It's worse for him being in Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, there's there's people like the Hoppers who are suddenly out of a job. You know, all these people are affected um and herc says it best um with his his line you know it's like one of those nature shows and you mess with their environment and some species gets fucked out of the habitat which yeah. is kind of a blunt <laughs> it's a blunt way to put it but it's kind of is it's a it, it's a similar thing to like humans coming into the rainforest and then suddenly a, a species is extinct like yeah. it's this huge adjustment to an ecosystem it's a it's a it's an an immense shift um, that's creating kind of a new society that Carver 
has kind of become almost de facto sheriff of in yeah. a way. Bunny, Bunny understood enough about playing the cops that game. Uh, and the brilliant part was he was about to leave. We got to speak to the absolute legend and gentleman that is Robert Wisdom, the man that brought Bunny Colvin to life. He ain't had nothing to lose, you know. So that was that to me was really kind of uh, one of the big uh, catalysts right there was that, you know, he, he was about to reach his uh, retirement. And uh, so uh, he was rolling dice. Let's just do it. A lot of these good things happen quietly. This is Professor David Nutt. He's a neuropsychopharmacologist, which means he knows all about how drugs affect the body. But most importantly, he's a huge fan of The Wire. Because as soon as they go public, so this is what happened in Britain. We had a we had in Liverpool. We had a really forward-looking, sensible doctor called Marks, John Marks, and he realised that people were dying and they were getting ill from bad, you know, dirty needles, etc. So he started the first, um, basically, prescribing heroin prescribing clinic, the first kind of public one, revolutionised for several. Years he had hundreds of people coming for their prescriptions, and they weren't dying, and it became uh, very famous. But then um, one day, Mrs. Thatcher went and met me, Mr. Reagan, in the eighties, and Mr. Reagan said to Mrs. Thatcher, "We don't like the fact that you guys are not hard on drugs." Uh, and she came back and she closed it down. And I do, I don't know how you can try and police it after the fact. It's clear that Bernie Hall is singular idea. Let's legalize drugs. Let's take it off these corners. Reduce crime. He's done that, but then he hasn't thought about. He hasn't thought about the other things and the hoppers being um, a by an afterthought. Really, now what do they do? Then now they're just kids who aren't in school, dicking around, and they don't have a job anymore. So what? What? What good are they? And, and they're still there. They're yeah, in this. this there. They're they're even in even worse place yeah. now. Um. So I mean, it's it's good of Carver to try and help. In a way, but I just kind of feel it's just kind of feel like, well, you're trying to close the gate after the, after the horse has darted. What what can you do? And we'll you know we'll see it unfold over the next few episodes. I think. Uh, well, and 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 it's interesting because he's there's only you're right. There's only so much Carver can do on the front lines. You know, he's as effective in this you know in this environment as he had been previously. In mm-hmm. many ways, he can only do so much without a policy shift or or a complete like uh, upheaval of a system. But you know, he he does kind of he he's a, he's smart. I like we we see how smart Carver is, and and he has heart. Yeah, and he. Because Herc, you know, um, and a lot of the other guys are just very much like arms crossed, like, who cares? Um, <laughs> but Carver finds a way, he carves out a way uh, to to kind of, like, he's, ma- he's rewriting the rules in this unlawful new world they've created. In many ways, it reminded me of the uh, Deadwood, also on yes, HBO. Yes. I don't know if you watched that. I watched Deadwood, yeah. That I mean, that felt like... It's an exploration of yes, yeah, it, it it is. It's this is the wild west. This is like the it's a frontier society with no laws, and they're kind of just f- all figuring it out together, and they're all lumped in there together. The the the, the lawmen, the criminals. Yeah. It's like it it's it's a fascinating social experiment. No, it's like it, it's it's tricky when you're in Amsterdam to look natural. This is the voice of Johnny Weeks, played by Leo Fitzpatrick. I mean, it wasn't too exaggerated as a set, you know, like those places 
in Baltimore, maybe they lit them up to look a certain way. But other than that, they didn't have to do much. Um, they were really these kind of burnt out row houses. Uh, and there was a, some of us would be nervous kind of laying down in these places and Jesus, am I going to catch something? Um, cause they, they weren't polished up too much, you know, it was basically, like, Oh, we got rid of some garbage and now put your face on the floor. And you're like, ah, I don't know. That doesn't sound so great. Um, but, but no, it was like kind of the weird thing for me about Amsterdam is, uh, Back then, maybe now, I'm not sure. At after the a day shoot, I like to have a beer, right? And so, and I'm also known for kind of wandering off set. That's kind of another thing I do. Um, and so, be, you know, when I could tell the day was winding down, I would go to the to the deli and get a beer. And nobody would blink an eye. I mean, I was still in costume. Nobody cared how I looked. They just cared about the fact that I was white in that neighborhood. Um, so that kind of always struck me as funny. It's like, like I look like the character Johnny, but that's they—they they, they were more like worried about my safety. Like, white boy, you should get out of this neighborhood. It wasn't like, oh, you not even offering me drugs or you know, it was like you're in the wrong neighborhood. When Bubbles walks through, and Bubbles is the perfect character for this. It needed to be Bubbles. Because Bubbles has seen some shit, you know? I mean, Johnny's already been diagnosed with AIDS, you know? That guy's done been, you know, he, he, he's had the specter of death over him for a long time in the show at this point. And Bubbles has seen some other dark stuff along the way. And he's walking through, and it's this Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, nightmare landscape. Only bubbles. And the way he hesitates, even he is just like, wow, this is dire. Um, Should we move on to a different section? Yeah, where do you want to go? Let's go back to Bunk and his his quest to find the gun. this kind of pointless quest that oh, we've it's been going on for episodes yeah i just i still think i still feel it's there's better ways to spend time yeah. for a police officer who's so does bunk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah um but luckily i mean you know it's head-to-head that he has with omar in the previous episode comes to fruition and omar has a chat with his boy butchie uh bunk goes and visits butchie and butchie says you know here you know here, here's the gun and it's wrapped up in Omar's tie that he that he wore at the, in court last season, which is a nice it's little a nice touch. touch isn't yeah, it? Um, and then we see that kind of capped off by I don't know. It's like a presentation to to the media that we tried, we came, we saw, we conquered, we got the gun back. It's a bit much, wasn't it? Yeah, like having this having a press conference for a gun coming back. You just think there's so many things. There's people dying in witness protection. Yeah, which has kind of been brushed aside, but they found a gun. Of which point, you know, there's, there's there's too many guns on the street. If they if they'd said we found all the guns, then have <laughs> yeah, but, but we found we present you all, all of the guns. The guns. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> no, you're right, and they deliberately contrast that with um, 
with Carcetti writing his uh, letter of complaint to the mayor. Yes. Um, those scenes are cut together because he's watching this press conference on the TV. So you, you're, that's a great observation because it's it's a ridiculous contrast. Mm. Um, but it 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 kind of makes sense in this system, and you know we, we see it in in all corners of Western civilization that the the media who we don't haven't met yet as such in this show, but they would have they would have grasped onto a, a shot police officer. Mm. And any sort of a nice little bow tie to that story, yeah, they, they've got him, the hero cop, standing on stage looking awkward, um, as well. That that's a good story. Um, not to say that the you know witnesses getting shot wasn't a story because Carcetti picked it out of the. <laughs> uh, but it's in it's in that's a harder problem to solve in many ways. Yeah, it's an unfortunate one. Um, well, let's talk about Carcetti. Um, and going back to the witness protection thing, he's got. He's starting to get a grasp of things. He's starting to um, work out how to get his name out there by pissing people, pissing the right people off, and also pretending he's not pissing the right people off. Because he goes, he's, you know, going down the route of the witness, witness protection. Um, initially, he's trying to get in Burrell's face with it a bit. But then, who was it that, who was Agostino? Who was it that suggested that he should go to? Uh, yeah, D'Agostino. Well, he, he was going to. Um D'Agostino said, "Go to go to the mayor again." Yeah, um, and then if he still hasn't done anything, write him a letter, yes. and then you've kind of documented it. So you know, if nothing gets done six months from now, when you make your play, then you've got like, "Hey, you look what I said six months ago, and you've done nothing." Oh no, yeah. sorry, she says, "Wait till the next witness is killed," which is super dark. Yeah, um, and that's when you bomb, drop that letter bomb, um, and she says the. She or Carcetti says the line, you know, it's 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 win win. Either he does, you know, no witness gets killed, um, and uh, or the witness gets killed and you drop this letter. And and you know, his wife astutely said, win win for everyone except the witness. <laughs> and but it's like that. This is an interesting already. You know, we've seen the mayor and his aides be completely out of touch with yeah. reality yeah. and the common man. We and- don't want to have to get a real job. <laughs> No, exactly. That's exactly the moment. And then, um, and it's the same here. You see Carcetti, almost mayor, slipping into the same the same patterns. Yeah. Him and D'Agostino are just like it's starting like to play, people are starting to put these pieces into place on the on the chessboard. I think the idealism, some level of idealism, grew. You, you know, during season three, um, I think he found his political bearings. I, I think initially it was. Uh, definitely a more self-serving careerist. Um, this is the kind of job, uh, you know, I'm, you know, he was a, a product of his, his class or whatever, you know. Um, the voice you're hearing now is Aidan Gillen, who plays Carcetti. I feel like certainly in the earlier episodes or, you know, the first full season, it was, you know, someone who's uh, more self-centered um, than what he became, and uh, you know, a genuine, you know, a, a greater awareness of what was going on about him and how he could affect it. We get the we get introduced. Is it is this first time we meet Bernard and and his girlfriend Squeak? Yes, yes, it is. Um, yeah. So we there's. Basically, Burners. We've talked about Burners before. And for the Barksdale organization, Bernard is the source of the Burners. 
He is <laughs> Bernard Bernard. Yeah. I, I can't believe they haven't thought of this. They have, that's true, actually. We yeah. Right back. Guys, you need to refilm The Wire just to insert that. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> um, so his job is to singularly drive to lots of different quickie marts by no more than two... <laughs> <Quickie> marts. Yeah. <laughs> no more than two burners or whatever arbitrary small number it is and then go, drive to the next one. So they, so it makes it very difficult to trace. Um, and that's, for me, like if Avon rings me up and or Stringer rings me up and says, this is your job, you're going to be part of our crew, but all you have to do is drive, pick up these phones, and then give, give them back to us. I'll be like, sweet. That means I won't die as long as I do my job properly. Yeah, but then you <laughs> then you got to spend hours in a car with Squeak just complaining. <laughs> she, like, she wore him down. <laughs> I got involved in the show um, through Pat Moran casting. That actually was my second time auditioning for the show. I had auditioned for the show a year earlier, and I was to play um, um, season two. There was a mother whose eight-year-old son gets killed. Um, I think he gets shot through the window, I believe, or something. We got her. We got Mia Arnis. She plays Squeak. They did not believe that I was old enough to have an eight-year-old. I didn't look old enough to have an eight-year-old. So that didn't, that didn't pan out. And then um, I got a call to audition the next year, and um, I ended up getting it. Um, and that was that. Was that. And we, I, I believe... I'm, matter of fact, I'm positive that we were only slated for one episode and uh, they liked our chemistry and then they wrote us, wrote us in the other three. Just pieces of me in Squeak. <laughs> there are pieces of me in, in um, Squeak. I can be fiery. I can be sassy. I can cuss you out. Um, <laughs> so there are elements. Not Bernard, definitely not. He was just the sweetest, kindest guy. So I had to pull from other things to give that to him because he was just so uh, kind and warm that, you know, I could never see myself giving him that in real life. I didn't know too much because pretty much when you go to these auditions, you're pretty much doing a cold read. You don't know anything prior to um, what's going to happen. And I think they do it for a reason because they, sometimes they don't know the arc of the character because um, from what I found out after I got the role, you know, and we started shooting is that I was only supposed to be in maybe one episode, maybe one or two, possibly. Give it up for Melvin Jackson Jr., everybody. He plays Bernard in The Wire. Um, but they, they love me and Mia's chemistry, who plays Squeak, so much that they decided to write us in more episodes. It was amazing because we, you know, we met that first day and we just had to get into it. And so it was just like... We didn't really have time to kind of build a chemistry. It was just like, and it was kind of, I guess it was kind of good because I guess we should not suppose it like each other, the kind of relationship that they had. So it worked out. Um, but they, you know, we got right into it. And I remember David Simon and all of them were saying, man, you guys are so amazing. Like you have us cracking up every time we watch it in the dailies. How, you know, do you guys know each other? Did you, you know, like, no, we just met. So like, they were just like, our chemistry was so, was so dynamic on, on screen that it was just like, we got to have more. And so it was just a beautiful thing to just um, a testament of when you have good people that you work with and you know, the job that you have to do. And it just, and you have a great crew um, on the set of the wire that it, everything just comes together. Initially, I think the first time I saw this, I thought it was piss funny, but I just, um, it's not, it's not a weak female character, but it's like an annoying female character, which I was kind of disappointed. At. In the previous episode, we had the, the case where, one guy in Barstow organization was stealing money and giving it and giving it to his girlfriend 
and you know who was in high school, and then Cutty had to slap her to like stop that situation. And then there's another situation where the girlfriend of a guy in the gang is like putting pressure on him to just you know not not do his job properly. Or and I just felt although it's funny and it's played for comedy, but it's also like oh, it's, I wish they could have done that in a better way. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, in well, in some ways, yeah, it's totally played for comedy, and mm. it's kind of relying on lazy gender uh, stereotypes yeah. in in some ways. Um, and I think, look, um, better people than us have you know correctly criticised the Wire for its depiction of female characters. Yeah, I mean, it's got. Don't get me wrong; it's still got some amazingly strong female characters. I mean, Agusti- Agostino in this season's fantastic, and uh, Donette, I yeah. would argue, and Rhonda Perlman yeah. is brilliant. But um, you know this. There's kind of not enough of them. This is very, the wire is presented as a as a as a man's world, mm. right, rightly or wrongly, um, and you know, and and sadly, we are two men in a room talking about it. <laughs> so that's what that's why we're even more reliant on on female voices on this podcast yeah. for that perspective. We need you guys, more of you. <laughs> I don't think shortchanged is the word I would use. It was an honor to hear from Deirdre Lovejoy, aka Rhonda Pillman. Do I think that there there is a whole side? of uh, the female characters that were never explored. I absolutely do, but I don't say that as a criticism. I think, you know, their experience, uh, is, they wrote to their strengths, and their strengths are, uh, you know, male. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's anything that uh, couldn't be improved, but, um, you know, I would have loved to have seen more well-rounded uh female characters in there that want you know as opposed to just a lesbian um so this episode is more of the aftermath of uh mcnulty chasing down what really happened to d'angelo um stringer gets pissed off because mcnulty's spoken to danette danette who is d'angelo's ex baby mama (laughs) i guess yeah um tells stringer and he's he's not happy at all um, and then she's told Brianna Brianna Barksdale, and you know this is kind of things starting to starting to come unstuck here, which which is great for us because, as any sane person, we saw that there's no way anyone can strangle themselves <laughs> yeah. from from a door. Justice handle. for D'Angelo. Yeah, justice for D. But uh, yeah, the uh, it's interesting the scene because we don't we rarely see String lose his cool. Mm. And he gets physically violent here, yeah, um, in a real way because he knows how dangerous this um, this path is, and this line of um, questioning. I don't know. Hear the man out about Dean, and I know there ain't nothing to it, but she is all upset, you know. And I tried to tell her what you told me, but she says she wanna go down there and talk to him herself. I guess you told her about the cop. What about the detective? What you told me, you told her? It's her son, right? I mean, she got a right to know what's going on. Look, I just thought... What? Why the fuck are you gonna get all upset over some bullshit? Here we are, fucking year later. Everybody forgot about the shit. You go running your mouth about nothing at all? But strange. Well, and she gonna believe that shit, too. I mean, what mom's just not gonna believe her son didn't kill herself? Strange. How's she gonna take that shit? Go half crazy with it? I just... You just what? Sorry.
Hey there, White Strip Burner. My name is Tom Johnson. Um, love the podcast, love the show, obviously. Um, and just wanted to send a little message about my favourite scene in season three. And I think it's my favourite scene in the entire show. Um, I think Wendell Pierce alluded to it in your interview with him, but it's the beginning of one of the episodes, I think later on in season three, when Omar and Brother Muzone meet in an alley and they compare the guns they have. And it's just Shakespearean. It's on that level. It's incredible. And you've been waiting for it because of the whole narrative with Stringer and how you've slowly thought, oh, maybe they could, what if they got together? <gasps> and then the fact that that's what, when it ends with Omar listening and you think, oh my God, they're going to get together. It's just glorious. Thank you very much for sending in that burner message. If you want to drop us some audio on our burner phone, head to at the wire stripped uh, on any of our social channels and you'll see the, the number for our uh, for our burner phone there and you can just send it via WhatsApp or you can just send it uh, as an audio file to burner at thewirestripped.com. And we have recent news, guys. We have a Patreon account. We can find us. We are patreon.com forward slash the wire strips or go to patreon.com and search for the wire strips. And the reason is we have a fair few perks. And one of them is you get priority burner access. You see the segue there from the burner to talking about the Patreon. Oh, seamless. Uh, seamless. Absolutely. Um, and we have a few other perks. Uh, Dave, do you want to tell them about the other perks? Yeah, so you can get uh, early access to our episodes, so you get to hear them a week before everybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also get uh, the full-length interviews that we do uh, with the cast and crew, and we're going to be posting a different one every month. Uh, And for upcoming interviews that we do, uh, we will be taking questions uh, from people in the Patreon and submitting them to the cast and crew members directly. Yes, absolutely. And all of the money, that's 100% of the money that we um, get from the patron goes to supporting the Ella Thompson Fund, which is a charity supported by the cast and the crew of The Wire. Yeah, and it's an amazing charity. They basically uh, provide recreational opportunities to to children in Baltimore's neighborhoods uh, that, that need it most. We're just going to take a moment to say thank you very much to our co-op level patrons on patreon.com. They are Anuj Pandey, Dick Monaghan, Donald Adia, and Fro, F-R-O exclamation mark. Um, thank you so much for, for uh, joining us on Patreon, and we hope to see many more of you guys joining us as well. Um, I think we saw, we saw Snoop, was it last episode or the episode before, but she didn't actually say anything or didn't actually do anything. This episode, she gets to step up, and this is where... Poot's been given a corner, and big deal for Poot. Yeah, he's yeah, looking at it. where we see small, humble beginnings in the. That's it. He's starting. He's starting to think that's that's his feet been planted in the ground. He's going to move away from being a pawn. To yeah, to and use the famous chess analogy <laughs> from season one. And then he's given some. He's given some soldiers, some big guys to help protect the corner, but they are no protection from Snoop, who's on the back of a motorcycle on the drive-by shooting, which I think is very vicious, this one. Yeah, it's hor- it's horrific. And, um, you know, quite Snoop's quite effective because when you see her on the back of um, the motorbike, she looks so inoffensive, mm. doesn't she? Absolutely. She just looks like a like a little girl. Yeah. The, um, 
Well, she's a riding, small figure. Riding with her dad. Yeah. She's so small. <laughs> <laughs> and then out comes a gun and slays like one of the guys. Uh, and initially, you know, you think that Poot's gone. You think that's the end of Poot. Yes. Yeah. It certainly appears that way. Yeah. Um, but he miraculously survived. Yeah. Poot's like, uh, you know, and we, you know, we won't spoil um, the rest of the, the, the series. But, <laughs> but um, why? Poot's, Poot's really resilient as a character and just keeps popping up. He's a cockroach. <laughs> Poot's not a cockroach. That's a bit, <laughs> that was a bit harsh. That's a bit <laughs> I just meant in that he shares he, their uh, absolute resilience in the face of all of adversity. Yeah. But uh, this this kind of, again, we see the strategy of, uh, of um, Marlowe and his guys here just playing the long game. They're not... Um, they want their corners. They're not kind of interested in, in the co-op idea, but they still... But then they've got a different game to Avon, haven't they? They've got the... A slightly smarter game, I think, than Avon. Avon's just like, no, no, I want my shit because that's how it should be. And Marlowe wants his corners, but in a, in a different way and maybe a bit more brutal way sometimes. Yeah, I agree. I think Marlowe's much more brutal than Avon mm. um, and colder and more calculating than him in, in many ways. Marlowe's almost like a mix of String and Avon in that he's got that sort of detached, calculating thoughtful edge that stringer has yeah but he's but he's his motivations and objectives are the same as avon you know he's he's he just wants he's happy with the corners yeah. and that, that that's his battleground and that's where he's comfortable but avon's very different to him because he's passionate and and um and hungry and he's a family man you know he's got very, he's got very avon, different values he, as well. he really wears his heart on his sleeve whereas yeah. marlowe is is like a is like a He's like a he's door. Terrifying. <laughs> Marlo's like, um, he is. He's like this cold shark. Yeah, I was, was, like was going to say shark. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, it, that's exactly <laughs> it. It's like he's like it's like the the shark from Jaws. You you just can't reason with no. that. <laughs> <laughs> don't kill people. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm fine. Do it or don't. But you know, I've got places to be. Kobe, we're going to need a bigger corn. <laughs> So it's just a brief vignette of Cutty. Um, he's in the previous episode. He quit, quit the game, um, and we just see him catch up with uh, with a deacon who he met previously. And not they didn't get on with him, but thought he, you know, he's better than a deacon. And it's kind of good to see him connect with a guy who should hopefully put him on a straight and narrow. Yeah, I like this. This is our sort of um, after Cutty's amazing moment of self revelation in the last mm. episode. This is you know. He's committed to this path now, it feels. Uh, you know, he's back the landscaping. He's got a little bit of banter with his boss. Uh, and he's looking for change. Um, and there's this wonderful moment at the end of his conversation with the deacon uh, where he says, it's Cuddy, right? And he says, no, call me Dennis. Yeah. And it's like, that's this beautiful moment of transition almost, isn't it? It's yeah, like, this yeah, Chris, yeah. like he's emerging from the, the chrysalis, <laughs> reborn as Dennis. I'm probably going a bit overboard now. No, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you're looking to join a church? I, um... I just... I've had this feeling for a long time. And it's like I'm standing outside myself watching me do things I don't want to do, you know? Just seeing me like I'm somebody else, 
but never ever being able to stop the show. I'm tired. It's Cuddy, right? Nah, man. Dennis. All right, let's head over to the the major case unit. Yeah. Check in with the details. Yeah. So, um, so they get the news from up top. Daniels tells them they have a new target. And a renewed target. A re- that's it. It's Stringer Bell. Uh, no longer working on Kintel Williamson. And Daniels is pissed off because he knows full well <laughs> how this has come about because he's a smart guy. Uh, well, I thought what was interesting in this scene was Sidner and uh, Prez's reaction to this, you know, cause we, cause we've been following Kima and McNulty and we're like, and we, and, and we're following Stringer Bell. So yeah. we know he's the real target. We've never even seen Kintel Williamson. No, we don't know what he's, we know he's been in places. Yeah. But we don't like, know which one he is. We don't know who he is. Which but, guy is he? So we're like, well, we don't care. But the, the reaction to Sidner that Sidner and Prez have is like super pissed off. It's like, it's like if you've been working on, something for six months yeah. at, at work and you've done all these presentations and everything and then your boss comes in and just say, no, forget about all that. We're not doing any of that. No, we're doing the thing you did two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like... You could have told me sooner. <laughs> exactly. So they've been doing all this work um, while McNulty and Kimo were off doing a different job yeah. that, that now is their job. So like, uh-huh. I, I, I thought it was a real... Str- uh, stroke of brilliance here that like putting these characters who've kind of gone into the background back into the foreground yeah, and just making it real. Sidner and Prez haven't done that much. Ian Freeman's been uh, not on the forefront uh, in this in this season so far. Um, Although they're doing more than um, Caroline, our new character, who just seems to just uh, cut coupons cut out of magazines. Out. What, I was, what, what's she doing there? Well, I'm sure she's doing work outside of that as well. Unless, or is that the work? Is that like, is there some connection to the drug dealers? Can you get, are they sell, selling coupons well, in magazines? Amsterdam, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two for one on uh, WMDs. <laughs> <laughs> I hear they're the bomb. <laughs> An interesting point here. Prez has been sidelined. Prez has been given a new target. Uh, in addition to going back into Stringer Bell, is helping McNulty get in touch with Teresa D'Agostino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's another thing. He's just yeah. really getting shit on here, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's really on low on the pecking order, Prez. He is, and he's just kind of doggedly like, why do we need this? Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just, uh, it's someone I met once who I'd like to meet again. Uh, <laughs> McNulty doesn't even give him a very good excuse, no, rubbish, does he? He's it? just like, do this. Well, there's always, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I'm working, I'm on a show now um, called Bosch and I play the chief police. Here's Lance Reddick. He plays Daniels. We have two, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, RHD robbery homicide are, are the kind of are, like they're the elite of the elite of the of the detectives, and so we have two robbery homicide detectives who are consultants. And one of them, I asked her once. Uh, I said, um, "Would would you ever want to be, you know, going to ma- command?" And she said, without hesitation, she said, "Oh, no way! I don't. I'm not a kiss ass." Like there's just a, there's just a, among among detectives there's just it's it's like it's 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 not just mcnulty (laughs) it's not i mean detectives who really who just love that work and think that what they do is what's most important they see the bureaucracy as just you know a necessary evil what do you think about this scene 
with McNulty getting chewed out by Daniels because that's one of my biggest fears in life is being chewed out by Daniels. I would hate to be on the receiving end of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, as soon as the spell case is over, you're off this unit. So I think, I think to be honest with you, the fear for me, if I was if I was getting shout out by uh, Daniels, I'd be shitting myself. But I think McNulty for him is just like fine. Once Bell's behind bars, then I'm happily yeah. I'm happily at this. Um, although I don't know at this point, you don't think I couldn't understand. I could not fathom what he would do because he's such. The reason he's such a great police. It's just so natural to be in a policeman in, in in the homicide in that kind of major crimes unit. But on the on the beats, you'd imagine he'd just be the worst copper. So, yeah. and when we saw him on the boat, he wanted to pretty much kill himself. So, but maybe the drive to get stringers just the biggest thing that's clouding every kind of judgment. At, yeah, at the moment. It's interesting about it. It's like everything... It's like he's both the most selfish character in the show and kind of the most noble in most, some ways. Most inspired. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's com- well, he's doggedly committed to one purpose that he puts above his own desires. Like you said, he's not phased at all by the fact that he's gone to career hell again. Mm, yeah. Like, this is his second shot and he's throwing it away for his chance of getting Stringer Bell. That's how determined he is to take this guy down. Um, which maybe says something about his like, maybe maybe it is more about McNulty himself and less about the police work and feeling like he has to complete this. But it certainly feels like a very unselfish act from a character who is ridiculously self-serving mm. in every other facet of the show. Okay, so we, we let's talk a bit about the the burner tech chat. Sure, right? Because because we have a quick scene where. Um, McNulty has an idea to get one of these burner phones and they they pull in Bodie and his crew um, and then do a little swapsies yeah. um, on the phone. And that goes back to, to Prez, who gets very excited by all this and de- then does some sort of number wang with speed <laughs> dials or something. Now, I'm maybe I'm stupid, but like I didn't... I'm struggling with, with a lot of this. So can you, Kobe, Mr. Scientist, Kobe, please explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old? Well, I mean, a first stage you kind of uh, skipped over is that they need... They understand... The web of the of the kind of burner network is the web the internet. Uh, it is and it isn't. <laughs> Not in this case. <laughs> but yeah, they they kind of through prayers and through through Freeman, they kind of understand that they're they a they've got a very short window of time to get the to get the burners up and running and get the get the affidavits on the burners, and they kind of work out that they need like one one person's burner that they know was registered to someone. So they can use that as the kind of key to unlock the web that they've kind of put together. Okay. Um, what they should do is like do three normal police work, follow people and follow someone like Bodie or Poots or Stringer ideally, see them use a burn and, and throw it away and then and pick that one up. But what, what Minolta does is get a burner that looks like the same as everyone else's and then catches Bodie and does a little swapsy thing, as you say, and then that uses that burner and takes it back to Prez and that's when Prez is like, Oh my god! How did you do this? Um, <laughs> so this is Press's naive optimism. It is, is yeah. just like so endearing. And this is this is this is prime McNulty again, isn't it? This is prime. A he should have been on surveillance, but he decides not to to go to the bar because I've got a better idea. And B, this is using his, you know, he's going into he's going into the into the storage to find a phone that has been confiscated and uses that to swap it out and stuff like that. Yeah, um, which is re- like frowned upon. Uh, I think well, more than yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, so they use that, and that's how they can unlock what's going on and understand what's going on within the burner network, which should have been unbreakable, really. And they set it up to be really, really tough to tough to break down. And kudos to them for coming up with that system. Yeah, and the even Freeman is impressed. Yeah, like he just admires the the professionalism of it all. But they haven't factored in Burner Bernard. <laughs> they haven't factored in Burner Bernard. But one one thing when they get back. They go back. They give the phone to. They give um, Bodie's phone back to, to Prez and Freeman, and then in the later scene, you see McNulty watching Daniels and Perlman being explained that as to how they're going to unlock the web, and which is, I guess, a catalyst for a lot of the things that happen in future episodes. That's when he wanders in late and yeah. uh, drunk and hungover <laughs> after his uh, uh, creepy D'Agostino stalking. Yeah, this is it. After his, <laughs> yeah. after his boots called D'Agostino. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird there. thing to do. Yeah. Right? Go all the way over town and just show up. I guess it just doesn't happen in these days of WhatsApp and Tinder and all these things. Like you just This is the uh, 2005 equivalent of sliding into your DMs, I guess. Yeah. You slide into a, a, a rich bourgeoisie uh, <laughs> event that you're hosting for work. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because he just like yeah. turns up. Yeah, and she, yeah. and she, well, she's kind of pleased to see him. Oh, she's totally slips pleased him, to see him, yeah. Yeah, slips him her hotel card. Yeah, get out of here. Here's my hotel card. Get yourself yeah. comfortable and service me and get out. Yeah, <laughs> which I like. I actually really, I, I liked uh, that, the way D'Agostino did that. The like, honesty. she's a, well, uh, she's also like, in many ways, that's a, something that a you know a stereotypical male character would do historically. Sure, sure. Is in like she's a she's a career woman mm-hmm. um, who's just like uh, likes sex and wants to use him for um, for one night stands basically. And we saw it in a previous episode where she's like the next morning, like get out. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm done with you. Like um, I need to work. Uh, so it's like she's. She definitely has the the power dynamic in in their relationship, which I like, and and I think it's something that like McNulty's clearly drawn to as well. I like, yeah, and I like the way it's McNulty. This is happening to not not prayers, not some other person. It's McNulty, the ultimate yeah. philanderer that's being played. He's being philandered. Yeah, he's been played. <laughs> okay, that's it for us this week. We'll be back next week to talk about season three, episode eight of The Wire. It's called Moral Midgetry, which is a lot of fun to say. Yeah, and between now and then, you can, of course, contact us, guys. We are burner at thewirestrip.com. Uh, that's that's our email address. Um, please do follow us on Twitter and Instagram in particular. We are both at thewirestripped on those channels. Yes, uh, so as always, a huge thank you to Martin and Sam from the Song by Song podcast who recorded the cover of Way Down in the Hole that you're listening to right now. Thanks to Simon Devereaux, aka Devs Noodles, D E V Z Noodles, uh, on Instagram uh, for the artwork for this season. A huge thank you, as always, to Obi Joshua uh, for uh, his production support, research, and uh, basically getting us all together and whipping us into shape. Yeah, thanks for the whipping there, Obi. It's been, uh, it's been, it's been inspiring. Uh, ben Williams, uh, thanks for your production support and editing for this season. And uh, as always, uh, finishing out our fearless uh, producer leader, Mr. Tom Wally, T-Bone himself, series producer, editor, and parent extraordinaire. (laughs) And shed dweller. Uh, Yeah, he lives in a shed, guys. Might not not know that about him. I mean, he has a house as well, but I think he mostly lives in his shed making podcasts. Well, that's the dream, isn't it? Well, thanks very much, guys. See you next episode. See you next week.
You just heard a stripped media production.